before we get started, I want to, I want everyone to know, I, I prayed for everyone that's here today. In the mornings, I get here early, and I, I pray. And one of the things I do is I walk around, and I, I pray for every pew. I put my hand on the pew and pray for those who will sit there. Those who always sit in the same place, I typically pray for you by name. And then if there's guests, people that here I pray for whoever will sit here. And so my, my prayer today has been for all of us to draw closer to Christ, for all of us to be more and more of who Jesus wants us to be. With that in mind, we're going to get into Mark chapter 6 today. And I want to begin with a question. The question is, what do you expect Jesus to do in you and through you and for you? Right, so keep that in mind. What do you expect from Jesus that he would do in you, through you and for you? And is this expectation, is it more now-based or is it more future-based? Here's what I mean by that. We all have future-based expectations of Jesus. We expect there will be a day in the future when Jesus will come back. We expect there will be a day in the future when we die and Jesus takes us to heaven. But, these are future-based expectations, but... What do we expect Jesus to do in us and through us and for us right now in the present? Now, my fear is that as modern evangelical Christians, American evangelical Christians, we have very little expectation of Jesus doing anything in us, through us and for us right now in the present. This reality first came to my mind several years ago when I was reading through the book of Romans. Let me show you what stood out and convicted me. Paul, writing to the Romans, just his general introduction, says, For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, Also, just as I did among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, notice the the wording that I've highlighted there. Paul longs to go to Rome so he can impart a spiritual gift to them so they can be established so he can have fruit among them, just as he has among other Gentiles. Paul has full expectation that Jesus, and it's a present expectation, a present-based expectation that Jesus will work in him and through him and for him to make a difference in their lives. Now, the first time I saw that and realized what I was seeing, I was terribly convicted by it. Because if, if I was being honest then, and if I'm being honest now, I struggle. But if I was being honest then, I didn't have that sort of present-based expectation. If you had asked me, are you certain what you do for Jesus makes a difference? I would have said yes, because 1 Corinthians 15 says that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. But if you asked me if I had a real conviction, I mean an absolute belief that what I do in the name of Jesus, it's going to impart a spiritual gift that people would be established, that I would have fruit among the people I serve. Honesty would have compelled me to say, I don't know. I mean, I, I just probably not. Now, I don't think Paul's expectation of being able to impart a spiritual gift that they would be established, have fruit, was because he was an apostle. I think Paul's expectation was based upon the fact he knew Jesus. And he knew who Jesus was, and he knew what Jesus was like. 
And knowing these things about Jesus gave Paul an expectation that Jesus would work in him and through him and for him to make a difference in the world around him right here and right now. And on that day, my lack of present-based expectation bothered me. And, if I'm being honest, it, it still does. I, I've grown since the first time I understood that. But still, still there's a struggle to believe. Still there's a struggle to expect fruit and impart and establish and help. But, and, and I don't think I'm projecting. I don't think I'm the only one who lives with this lack of expectation. I think it's likely many of us live with that same sort of a lack of expectation. So let me ask you again. What do you expect Jesus to do in you, through you, and for you? Right here and right now. Not not what you expect when you die. Not what you expect when the book of Revelation comes to pass. What do you expect Him to do in you, through you, and for you today? Tomorrow, the day after that. Do you expect the great and powerful Jesus who did great and powerful things in the Gospels to work in you, through you, and for you to make a difference in the world around you right here and right now? And I've already mentioned I struggle with this, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe we should. I believe we're supposed to. I believe disciples of Jesus are meant to live with great expectation of what the great and powerful Jesus will do in us and through us and for us to make a difference in the world all around us. Let me show you this from God's Word. Open your Bible to Mark 6. We're going to start in verse 45. That's page 767. If you have a pew Bible, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. And immediately, Jesus had his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself dismissed the crowd. And after saying goodbye to them, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them, and he said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight. From the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over the land of Gesenerat and moored at the shore, and when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Jesus and ran about the entire country and began carrying here and there on their pallets those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and all who had touched it were being healed. 
title of the message this morning is Living with Expectation. Let's pray. Holy Father, we love you today. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to gather to study your word. We're thankful for the freedom we have, Lord, to, to just be here and to be unafraid. Uh, and to, to openly sing your praise, to openly study your word, to openly live out our faith and our devotion to Jesus. Father, we've come today with a desire. It's not a desire just to check a box and go home. It's not a desire just to sing some songs and listen to a fellow teach. Lord, we have come with a desire to meet with you. That is why we're here. So, Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would come and make your presence felt among us. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and take your word and make it living and active in this time. Let it speak to us. Let it convict us. Let it challenge us. Let it encourage us. Let it sanctify us. Let it do its great work in our lives so that when we leave here, we would be a people of hope. For you are the God of hope who fills us with all joy, power and the Holy Spirit so that we would abound in hope. Father, let us be a people who abound in hope today. Oh God, have your way in all of our hearts and all of our lives. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me say what you once said. Nothing more, nothing less. Work in all of us, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Show me to be seated. Now, initially, when I was looking at this passage, I thought about doing some sort of dealing with the storms of life type of message. And, and certainly this passage teaches this. But it wasn't what stood out to me as I studied it this time around. What stood out to me was the greatness and the power of Jesus on display all throughout this passage and throughout both of these stories. Right? Jesus, he, he walks on the water. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus heals the sick. And not just a sick, but many sick. All everywhere he went, he was doing this. And and none of this, as you look at this passage, none of this really seems to stress Jesus out. It doesn't strain his power. It doesn't strain his might. He just does them because he wants to do them. And he can do them because he is great and powerful. The lesson I want to learn, the lesson I want us to learn, it's the greatness and power of Jesus causes us to live with expectation in Jesus. The greatness and power of Jesus, it should cause us to live with expectation in Jesus. When we truly understand the greatness and power of Jesus, as well as embrace the truth of Hebrews 13 and 8, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever then the natural result should be we live our lives with present day expectation of Jesus working in us and through us and for us to make a difference in the world around us. Now that sounds easy enough, but what does it look like to live this kind of present based expectation? This passage gives us six principles for living a life of expectation. Number one. Expectation in Jesus leads us to obey Jesus. But expectation in Jesus leads us to obey Jesus. Now, this first point is pretty straightforward. Jesus, in verse 45, he, he tells them to get into the boat and to go to the other side. And they do it. Now, the idea 
uh, of obeying Jesus is it is basic. But I am convinced the basic stuff is very often the most important stuff. I think so often we want to get caught up in things that. What does this mean? And this is a difficult passage. And what does it mean? And we can get so caught up on on on. I don't want to say the word extraneous, but on secondary issues that are maybe difficult to understand or not quite clear that we we neglect the simple things, the, the easy things, the easy to understand things. And following Jesus, it is it is basic. It is simple because it's meant to be done by everyone who believes in Jesus. From the the newborn believer to the mature disciple. From the college educated to the high school dropout. If following Jesus was advanced and complicated, then some people would be unable to follow Jesus. And they would be unable to experience Jesus in the ways described in God's word. But what we see as we come to God's word is following Jesus is for everyone. Experience Jesus is for everyone. No one is excluded. And so the simple things, the basic things are usually the main things. Obeying Jesus is central to that. But let's be clear and let's be honest. Just because obeying Jesus is simple doesn't necessarily make it easy. Obeying Jesus is very often difficult. But think about it. There is no legitimate way we can say, I believe in the greatness and the power of Jesus. If I don't live a life of obedience to Jesus. How can I claim Jesus is great and powerful and awesome if I don't do the things he says? Jesus, in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, even goes out to say, if you aren't going to do the things I say, why do you even bother calling me Lord? We should all live for disciples of Jesus with an expectation, motivated obedience. I expect Jesus as who the Bible says he is. So I will do the things Jesus says to do. Expectation, motivated obedience will lead us to do big things as well as small things. Let me give you two examples of what I mean. A few years ago, a free will Baptist pastor I know from Texas led a short-term mission trip to Kenya. While he was there, he became convinced Jesus wanted him to move his family to Kenya as missionaries among the Samburu people of Kenya. He was convinced Jesus would work in him and through him and for him to bring these unreached people to Jesus. And so he went home and he resigned his church and he took his family and he moved to Kenya where he still lives and serves today with his wife. I mean, that's big. That's obedience. That's expectation. But does expectation motivated obedience always mean Jesus only leads us to do big things? Well, no, it doesn't. Expectation-motivated obedience is also seen when we seek to have a righteous influence and a righteous testimony everywhere we go 
Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13-16, we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. So I, I believe Jesus and I'm going to obey Jesus. So everywhere I go, I'm going to ensure I have a righteous testimony that doesn't bring shame to His name. Everywhere I go, I'm going to ensure I am a righteous influence on the people and the world around me. Expectation motivated obedience is seen when we take the initiative to reconcile ruptured relationships in our in ourselves or in others. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, we are to be peacemakers. Expectation motivated obedience is seen when we remove anything out of our lives, because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, that if your hand calls you to sin, you cut it off. If your eye calls you to sin, you gouge it out. It's better to remove something difficult and painful from your life than it is to live in sin and be cast into hell. Expectation-motivated obedience is seen when we let offenses go. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38 and 39, we're supposed to, to turn the other cheek. Expectation-motivated obedience is seen because we're generous. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, we're to give alms to the poor and we're to help those in need. Expectation motivated obedience is seen when we make prayer a priority. Because Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 6 through 13, that we're to pray, pray in our closet and pray to our Father who sees in secret. Expectation motivated obedience is seen when we forgive others. Because of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 and 15 about the need to forgive others so that our unforgiveness doesn't become a barrier in our relationship with Him. Expectation-motivated obedience is seen when we seek the rule and righteousness of Jesus first in our lives. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33 to seek the kingdom and His righteousness first and trust that everything else would be added to us. You get the idea. These are just a few areas where we're to obey Jesus. And they're all from the Sermon on the Mount. Those aren't what you would necessarily call big things. They are, in fact, ordinary things. Basic things of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Simple to understand, but but often complicated to put into practice. And, And yet, they're still a part of expectation Motivated obedience. When we're convinced of the power and the greatness of Jesus, we will obey in extraordinary ways, to be sure. But we will also obey in the ordinary, everyday, easy to understand, hey, look at what it says right there, kind of ways. Expectation motivated obedience leads us to obey Jesus in in big and small, ordinary and extraordinary ways. The greatness and power of Jesus causes us to live with expectation in Jesus. And expectation in Jesus leads us to obey Jesus. Secondly, expectation in Jesus leads us to trust Jesus. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of this story is where their obedience got them. Jesus said, get in the boat. They did. Jesus went off to the prey. In verse 47, while it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. He 
he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, intending to pass by them. So here they are. They have done exactly what Jesus said to do in exactly the way Jesus said to do this. And what they find is... They are in now in the middle of a storm. They haven't made just a whole lot of progress because the, the wind and the seas are against them. And, and the, the way it's worded, the way it looks, it looks like they're almost fearing for their lives. They're not sure if they're going to be capsized and drowned. And they're there because they obeyed Jesus. They did exactly what he said to do in exactly the way he said to do it, exactly when he said it needed to be done, and yet they still found themselves in this storm, straining to keep from falling over. That certainly seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? it? It makes the old cliche, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, seem a bit useless. So what do we do when we are in the middle of God's will? We're doing what he wanted done, the way he wanted it done, when he wanted it done, only to find ourselves rowing for our very lives. Well, if we bought into sort of the the modern cliche, anemic, weak, useless theology, we determine we've done the wrong thing and, and we give up in what we're doing. We just turn around and go back to the shore we came from. But if we understand God's word and we understand that even while we obey Jesus, there may be storms that rise against us, even in the center of Jesus's will, doing exactly what he wants done, we may find difficulties arise against us. Then what we'll do in that moment is we'll say, I know I'm obeying Jesus. This is what he wanted me to do. So I will trust him and I will keep on doing what he wants me to do. Now, here's a hard fact. There is no living for Jesus and obeying Jesus without ending up in the hard places of life. Well, even more real, there's just no living in this world and not dying. That doesn't end up with us in the hard places. The hard times, the storms, they come for everybody. The difference is what happens when it comes into the life of a disciple of Jesus. The storms are a given. The hard times are a given. The only question is how will we respond in that moment when they come? Will we quit because it's easy? Or will we trust Jesus and keep on? And I know this may sound harsh, and I hope it doesn't, I don't mean it to. But the fact is, only keeping on demonstrates expectation based trust in Jesus. It doesn't require us to trust Jesus to quit, it doesn't require us to trust Jesus and go back to the shore we came from. It does require us to trust Jesus to keep on keeping on. It demonstrates trust because it says, I trust Jesus even though things are hard. It says, I trust Jesus even though I don't understand why He sent me out here and this storm came up. 
It says, even though things are hard and difficult at the moment, I expect, I trust Jesus will work in me and through me and for me, even in the midst of this hard, difficult, painful situation. The greatness and power of Jesus causes us to live with expectation in Jesus. And expectation in Jesus leads us to trust Jesus, even in the worst storms of life. Three, expectation in Jesus leads us to look for Jesus. Now, one of my favorite parts of the story is in verse 47. Nope, verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars. I love that. So they're out in the middle and they're struggling. They can't see Jesus, but he sees them. And then he, what does he do? He goes to them. Right? He sees they're struggling and he goes to them. He sees the struggles they're facing. He sees the fear and likely confusion they have. He sees and he goes to them. He didn't wait for them to get it all squared away. He didn't wait for them to get the boat in order. He went to them in their time of need. Now, one of the great truths of God's Word is Jesus comes to us far more than we go to Him. And here's what I mean. Salvation. Everything, even salvation, begins with Jesus coming to us. Nobody just sits around and says, I need Jesus. Jesus Himself said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. The the psalmist says, I have heard you say, seek my heart. Oh, seek my heart. And so my heart responds, your face I will seek, O God. Our every desire from Jesus comes from Jesus Himself. He is the one who initiates contact with us to make us say, you know what, maybe I need salvation. Maybe I need my sins forgiven. Even as disciples of Christ, when we're saying, I I want more, I I want to know Him better, that is Him. He reaches out and He says, seek my face. And then our heart responds, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Everything begins with Jesus seeking us, not with us seeking Jesus. And since this is the case, since Jesus seeks us, since Jesus works in us, since Jesus comes to us and initiates contact with us, we should make it a point to look for Jesus at work in us and through us and for us in our lives. One reason I feel we don't live with expectation is because we have been culturally conditioned not to see Jesus in our life. I I talked about this in Sunday school. So if you're in Sunday school, you can take a nap for about a minute and a half. For example, what does our culture define as an act of God? if If the church was struck by lightning and exploded and everything was lost, that would be called an an act of God. But if you have a financial need and one day you just happen to put on a coat you haven't worn in a while and you find a hundred dollars in there that will meet your financial need what a stroke of luck good thing you happen to think to put that jacket on that day but what would happen if we stopped letting culture define what it means to see jesus at work in us through us and for us and we just determined we were going to look for jesus in the big and the small ways of life let me give you two examples these are personal for kelly and i 
When Kelly was born, or when Lizzie was born, not when Kelly was born, I wasn't there. When Lizzie was born, she began to have lots of problems and was transferred from Guyman Hospital to the NICU in Amarillo. After a week or so at the NICU in Amarillo, they determined her problems were more than they could handle, so they transported her to OU Children's NICU. While we were in Oklahoma City, we stayed in an apartment at Randall University. So we, we drove from Amarillo to Oklahoma City. We got Lizzie checked in. We went back to check into the apartment and took a nap, went to bed that night. Next morning, we got up. While Kelly was getting ready, I read my daily Bible reading. And I was reading, actually, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Five. And Mark 5.36, in the Bible I use, says this. But Jesus, well, I'll tell you the background. Jairus has come to get help from Jesus. His daughter's sick and at the point of death. Come before she dies. While Jesus is helping someone else, people come to Jairus and they say, Your daughter has died. Don't bother the master anymore. And then Mark 5.36 says, But Jesus ignored their comments and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just trust me. What a great passage. I went on about my day. We arrived at the hospital to see Lizzie. And the neurologist met with us and told us she had a debilitating disease. And over the next three to five years, we would watch her slowly die. She told us we would watch as her muscles stopped working. And she would either suffocate because she didn't have the strength to breathe or her heart would just stop working. But either way, before her fifth birthday, she would die. And we would watch it. And then she turned around and walked out. Or we stood open mouth trying to process the information. After a minute or so, I remembered my daily Bible reading and I turned to Kelly and I said, Jesus ignored their reports and said, don't be afraid. Just trust me. For the next two months, we live by that verse. That verse gave us strength to get out of bed in the morning, go to the hospital, stay there and talk to the doctors as they told us over and over again, the various and awful ways our daughter was going to die while we watched. Was my reading Mark 5.36 just before we went to the hospital or coincidence? I mean, I, I, read it, I, read a, I follow a daily Bible reading plan. I read that passage on the same day every year. Or was it Jesus coming to us in our time of need? And then another story, ten years ago, Maybe a little bit more. Caitlin lost her cell phone. It had been gone for nine months. I mean, it was gone. We called it. We looked. It was gone. One day at church, we were talking about Caitlin losing her cell phone. And Joan told us to pray about it. Well, we had not prayed to find a cell phone. It was an old phone at that. So we hadn't put much effort into it. So we did, though. We went home that day and we prayed about finding the phone. It snowed. It snowed quite a bit. And our, our habit as with my girls when they were little was we would go over to the park, try to be the first ones over there to make footprints in the snow. So I went to get my snow boots. I'm going to put them on. Lo and behold, there was something in the right boot. And it was Caitlin's cell phone. What a coincidence. We found Caitlin's cell phone on the day we prayed to find it. But, but was it a coincidence? I mean, did was it just a coincidence or was that Jesus coming to us? Now, I chose those two stories intentionally because one is very serious and the other is not. 
Yet in both we find that if we follow our cultural conditioning, we'll look for reasons why it's not Jesus instead of looking for Jesus. A big part of living with expectation is not just looking for Jesus in the big moments of life, but looking for Jesus in all the moments of life. James 1.17 says, God is the giver of every good thing. So if we believe God's word is true, we should look for Jesus in all the moments of life and all of the things that happen, rather than looking for reasons why something isn't Jesus. The greatness and the power of Jesus causes us to live with expectation in Jesus. And expectation in Jesus leads us to look for Jesus. Fourthly, expectation in Jesus leads us to rest in Jesus. Now, Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. Now, why did he come walking on the sea? He could have come in any way he wanted. Well, here's my theory. What were they most afraid of at this moment? The sea. And so Jesus came and he was walking on what they were most afraid of. He was greater than the wind and the waves and the storm they were afraid of. Then, when Jesus gets on the boat, immediately it all stopped and they are utterly amazed. Jesus exercised full control over nature by walking on the water. Jesus exercised full control over nature by stopping the wind and the waves at his will and his desire. The term for this is lordship. The earliest creed of the early church was Jesus is Lord. But the creed Jesus is Lord isn't just a snazzy saying. It's an actual reality of life. Jesus is Lord means he has the power, the authority and the right to do, to cause or to allow whatever he determines is best for all of eternity. Now, there is comfort in the lordship of Jesus. When we trust the lordship of Jesus, we are confident our lives are in his hands and at no point has he lost control. The lordship of Jesus means nothing happening in our lives is outside of his power to change. He can change any circumstance. He can calm any storm. He can fix any problem. This doesn't mean things aren't hard. It doesn't mean they aren't difficult, painful, or even just outright terrible. But it does mean we don't despair over these things. Because Jesus is Lord. Even over the hard things. Even over the difficult things. Even over the terrible things. And even over the painful moments of life. The greatness and the power of Jesus causes us to live with expectation in Jesus. And expectation in Jesus leads us to rest in Jesus. Expectation in Jesus leads us to learn from Jesus. The disciples, it says, were utterly astonished in verse 51. At what they had just seen. Now, on the one hand, I can see why they might be utterly astonished. Jesus had just walked on the water and had calmed the storm. That's not an everyday occurrence. On the other hand, I have to think this wasn't exactly their first rodeo with Jesus calming storms. I mean, the time that has elapsed from Mark 4 where Jesus calmed a storm is, is not that much in time. I mean, it's not years. It's weeks, maybe months, but it's not that long. And in the interceding time, Jesus has he calmed the storm. He's cast out legions of demons. He's healed a woman from an incurable disease. He has raised a little girl from the dead. He has fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. 
I mean, Jesus, and then in the things they have, other things they have seen him do. I mean, they have seen Jesus do amazing things. Why didn't they learn? Why didn't they learn from what they had seen from Jesus that this is just who he is? He's great and powerful and he does this sort of stuff. It tells us in verse 52. They had not gained any insight from the loaves because their hearts were hardened. From the things they had seen Jesus do, they should have learned he could do anything. They should have learned he was all powerful. They should have learned he was all great. They should have learned he could meet any need, do anything he chose to do. But their hearts were too hard to learn those lessons. I fear we have the same problem in our day. In conservative evangelical churches, we believe the miracles of God's word are true. Jesus really did do these things, and we will fight you to the death over that. That's a hill we will die on. He did it. And though we believe He did it, if someone were to come to us and tell us a story of something Jesus did in them or through them or for them that that mirrored what we see in God's Word... We are more than a little skeptical that they have actually had a miracle take place in their life. But but what if, just entertain this thought for a second, what if, rather than that showing that we are discerning, what if that shows we're actually hard-hearted? That we're not learning from Jesus as we should. Often what we do is we have this box about what Jesus is like. And, and, and if whatever Jesus does, or someone says Jesus does, in them, through them, or for them, if it fits within our box, excellent, praise the Lord. But if it's outside of our box, it's outside of our comfort, and someone says Jesus did this through, in them, through them, or for them, and it's outside of our box, we, we pull back and we begin to explain it away, why it really wasn't Jesus, or it really wasn't the miracle, or it didn't happen like they said it happened exactly. And we would never say we're limiting Jesus by saying He wasn't doing those things. Here's, here's how we adjust it. We say, our my box is God's Word, and Jesus will never do anything Outside of what we see in God's Word. Never do anything that contradicts this. And I would say, Amen. Absolutely, that's right. And saying that sounds great and it sounds accurate, but but let me ask you a question. If the box that defines what Jesus does is God's Word, does the Jesus revealed in God's Word do great and mighty things? Does he raise the dead? Does he cast out demons? Does he multiply food? Does he calm the storms? Does he deliver people, save them in radical and unbelievable ways? Well, if the answer to that is is yes, and of course the answer to that is yes, he does. And if Hebrews 13 and 8 is true, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then what is our reasoning For saying Jesus doesn't do those things now. Let's be very careful not to have hard hearts that limit 
Jesus because of our doubts or our fears or our cultural conditioning. Let's be sure as we come to God's word and we read about the greatness and the power of Jesus, we are learning the things we're supposed to learn. So our faith and expectation in Jesus will reflect the greatness and the power of Jesus as it's seen in God's word. The greatness and the power of Jesus cause us to live with expectation and expectation in Jesus leads us to learn from Jesus. And then finally, expectation in Jesus leads us to believe Jesus. Verse 53 through 56, Jesus and his disciples finally land on the other side. And when they do, the people recognize him. And everywhere he goes, they flock to him trying to get their sick healed. They Even so much if they would touch the fringe of his cloak, just let us touch your cloak and we'll all be healed. Now, they've obviously heard the story that we read about a few weeks ago about the woman who touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. So that tells us why they're doing what they're doing. They they believe Jesus, right? They they have heard the stories about what he has done and they they believe they believe he can meet their need. They believe he can heal their sick. They believe he can do what needs to be done. They believe Jesus can deliver them. They believe Jesus. How about us? Do we believe Jesus? I don't mean do we believe in Jesus. We do, I'm sure. But do we believe Jesus? Do we believe Jesus when he says in John 8, 36, whom the Son sets free is free indeed? Do we believe Jesus when he says in John 14, 12, those who believe in him will not only do the works he's done, but greater works still? Do we believe Jesus in John 10, 27, when he said his sheep will hear his voice and follow him? Do we believe Jesus when he says in John 15 and 8, if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit? Do we believe Jesus in Luke 24, 49, when he says that we will be endued with power from on high. Do we believe Jesus? You know, there's a difference from believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. Believing in Jesus is believing that he he lived and he died and he rose again. But believing in Jesus is taking what he said and saying that's that's true. That's real. That's right. The greatness and the power of Jesus cause us to live with expectation in Jesus. And expectation in Jesus leads us to believe Jesus. I, I want to live with present day expectation of Jesus working in me and through me and for me to make a difference in the world around me. So one of the things I've been trying to do since I read that in Romans all those years ago is just to take God's word at face value. I'm afraid what we do far too often is we we read something in God's Word and we believe it because it's in God's Word and we believe God's Word is true, but then we start trying to come up with reasons why it doesn't mean for us today what it meant for them who originally read it. Or why Jesus doesn't do today What God's word clearly tells us he did. But what if 
What if we stopped looking for reasons why God's word doesn't mean what it says and we just took it at face value? I mean, what would that change in how we read our Bible, how we lived our Bible, how we lived our day to day lives? Now, I'm not talking about twisting God's word or pulling it out of context to make it mean anything we want it to mean. That, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I've seen and what I've done is to look at something in God's word, something it says Jesus has done or something it says Jesus still does and say, I've never experienced anything like that. Therefore, Jesus must not do those things anymore. Or, well, that's really weird. It would be so awkwardly weird if Jesus were to do that today. I bet he doesn't do that sort of thing anymore. And chances are I'm not the only one who's done this. And what I'm saying is let's choose not to do it anymore. Let's take God's word at face value. When it says Jesus can do something, let's just say Jesus can do it. And let's expect that he will. Let's refuse to lower God's word to our experience, our circumstances, or our comfort. Let's refuse to limit Jesus to our experience, our circumstances, are our comfort. This, I believe, is the path to living with expectation. And this, I believe, is the path every disciple of Jesus is meant to live. I don't believe the things I've talked about today are things that are for an elite few. I don't think it's for apostles or prophets, preachers or deacons or missionaries I believe every one of those things that is for every single disciple of Jesus that is how we are all supposed to live and I believe it is how we all can live the question is will we because the reality is some don't want to that thing that gosh that would be weird or that would be uncomfortable their comfort becomes the limit. So Jesus, I don't want you to do that because I think that would be weird. I don't want you to do that because that would make me really uncomfortable if you worked in somebody's life like that. Do we want to live with a present-based expectation? Jesus working in us and through us and for us to make a difference in the world around us. If we do, I believe we can. But it begins as with these, these people who believed and sought Jesus. They were desperately seeking Jesus. I mean, look, look at the wording in this. They recognized Him. They ran about the entire country, began carrying here and there on their pallets those who were sick. And wherever they heard He was, or wherever He entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick. I mean, do you see the... The desperation. They were imploring. That is a strong word of, of begging. If we want to live this way, and we currently don't. Maybe if you say you do, I, I will believe you. I have no doubts. But if you say I don't, but I want to. 
And that the sort of desperate seeking we see in verses 53 through 56 has to mark us. Desperately seeking, pleading, imploring, crying out, help me. Pray as the man whose son was possessed with demons. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's stand. As our musicians come forward.